Isaiah chapter 45. I preached from this text a little over three years ago, and I titled that particular message, I the Lord Do All These Things. In the past three years, I've received some opposition on three particular doctrines that I wish to address this morning. And these doctrines are God's sovereignty, predestination, and providence. So I'll simply title this message, Divine Sovereignty, Predestination, and Providence. There seems to be a great deal of confusion and unbelief when it comes to what some deem as being difficult subjects to understand. Though I cannot explain these three divine doctrines, I really had no difficulty in understanding them because I understand very well that God says that He's sovereign and that God predestinates all things after the counsel of His own will and that He providentially brings all things to pass in time that He purposed in eternity. So the problem is not so much that these wonderful truths are difficult to understand. The real difficulty lies in submitting and believing these wonderful teachings of Scripture. Sadly, many would rather disagree and argue these truths instead of embracing them as truth. And I personally can find no peace no comfort, no rest, no assurance in any other than a sovereign God. And a a God who sovereignly brings to pass in time what He purposed and predestinated before the world ever was. So with that said, let's look here at Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 1, and see if we can find some understanding and revelation of God's divine character. God must give it for us to do so. I know that much. Verse 1, Thus saith the Lord to His anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have holden, to subdue nations before Him, and I will loose the loins of kings to open before Him the two-leaved gates, and the gates shall not be shut. Now here we're introduced to a man called or named Cyrus. The Scriptures call him the Lord's anointed. That word anointed means consecrated. It means set apart. It means to be set aside for a specific purpose. God anointed Cyrus and He set him apart to be a king. Now the Hebrew word anointed is pronounced Mashiach. And it's the same word used for the English word Messiah. Jesus Christ is God's anointed Messiah. He's the only one who could ever deliver and save God's people from their sin. But Josephus, who is the Jewish historian, records in his writings that Cyrus was considered and regarded by the people of Israel 
at this time in Jewish history to be Israel's ordained deliverer. And it was by the powerful hand of God that he was. Uh, That's an amazing thought when you consider that Cyrus was a Persian, a heathen who didn't know God. God can use anything and anyone to accomplish his will and purpose. Did you hear me? God can use anything or anyone to accomplish his will and purpose. Now, Cyrus was the leader of the Persian Empire. God gave him great courage. God gave him a brilliant mind. His genius placed him at the head of all the Persians. And God gave him, gave him numerous conquests. God raised him up to subdue nations. God enabled Cyrus to strip kings of their kingdoms. God opened gates. God opened doors for him that no man could open. And God shut gates, doors for him that no man could shut. And in verse 2, God promised to go before him. God promised to make the crooked way straight, to break in pieces the gates of brass, to cut asunder the bars of iron. How did God make the crooked places straight for Cyrus. He removed all obstructions, all obstructions, and gave him victory and success over every enemy and every difficulty. Only God can do that. Cyrus was an instrument of God. It's, is it not lawful and is it not right for God to do what He will with His own? Though Cyrus was a Gentile, though he was a heathen, he was still the property of God. All men and women are, whether they know it or not. A couple interesting facts concerning Cyrus are first, God used him to deliver and free the Jews from Babylonian captivity. And secondly, God enabled and caused Cyrus to rebuild his temple in Jerusalem. In verse 3, we see that God gave Cyrus treasures of darkness. God did this. God gave Cyrus hidden treasures or hidden riches in secret places. God gave this Persian king treasures that had been laid up in secret places, riches that hadn't hadn't seen the light of day for many, many years. God did that. God showed great favor to this pagan king. Why did God do all these things for Cyrus? For the same reason He raised up Pharaoh. So that God's omnipotent power be known and declared throughout all the earth. For the Scripture saith unto Pharaoh, even for this same purpose have I raised thee up that I might show my power in thee, and that my name might be declared throughout all the earth. Romans 9.17 In verse 3, the Lord Himself says to Cyrus, look at this, He says that thou mayest know that I, the Lord, which calls by name, is the God of Israel. God raised up Cyrus to accomplish His own will and purpose. And as God, He has that right. It was by God's right hand that Cyrus is holding, kept, maintained, made strong and courageous. God declares Cyrus and the whole, to, to Cyrus and the whole world that he's the God who does all these things. 
And it's the same today. Particular men are in power for one reason. God put them there. God put them where they are. And this is the reason. God will do all His pleasure. He would, he, he would cease to be God if He didn't. And this, my friends, is why. Look at verse 4. For Jacob, my servant's sake, and Israel, mine elect. God did all these things for His chosen people. Now, I want you to stay with me. In verse 4, God tells Cyrus, I have surnamed thee. I've given you a distinct name. I've given you a flattering reputation, even though thou hast not known me. Cyrus was ignorant of the very God that had raised him up to do great things. It's the same today. So-called powerful men take pride in their accomplishments because they don't know that it was God who raised them up. God here lets Cyrus know just that. In verse 5, God says, I am the Lord and there is none else. There is no God beside me. I girded thee, though thou hast not known me. Cyrus, God said, Cyrus, I girded thee. I surrounded thee. I prepared thee. That's what the word means. I formed a barrier around you. I strengthened you. I made you ready. I fenced you in. I hemmed you up. I fortified you. I, the Lord, did this. I did all these things and you didn't even know it was me who did it. I made you a king of many nations. I, I gave you strength, courage, and valor. I made you a great man of war. I made you successful. I made you victorious. It's God that does these things, friends, whether men know it or not. Though Cyrus was a heathen prince and ignorant of God, God for the glory of His own great name and for the good of His people, the sons of Jacob, he says here, the elect of God. God did these things for Cyrus, but it was God's people that benefited by what God did for Cyrus. Did you hear me? So why did God do it this way? Verse 6, that they, speaking of all the inhabitants of the earth, may know, know what? That from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none beside me. I am the Lord and there is none else. What does this great God who is in the heavens do? Whatsoever He's pleased. Whatsoever. Anything and everything. That's what the word means. The Lord pleased. That did He in heaven and in earth and the seas and all deep places. And don't make any mistake about it. God does what He does for His people. God ultimately does what He does for His own glory. Salvations of the Lord, and He gets all the glory, the honor, and the praise for the salvation of His people. They go hand in hand. Salvations of the Lord, He gets all the credit. He gets all the glory. Now, I want you to look at what God says of Himself in verse 7. God says, I form the light, and I create darkness. I make peace and create evil. I, the Lord, do all these things. Now, did I read that wrong? Is that what your Bible says? Does the Lord create light? That's what He says. 
That's what His Word says. The earth was without form. The earth was void. Darkness was upon the face of the deep. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. Folks don't have a problem with God creating light. Jesus Christ is the light and the life of men. There's no light or life apart from Jesus Christ. But God also says here that He creates darkness. Verse 7. And a lot of people have a problem with that. Some of you do. The Lord says, I make peace. Folks don't have a problem with that. People walk around all the time, peace, peace, little peace sign. Folks don't have a problem with God making peace. But the Lord says, also, I create evil. And some of you got a problem with that. Amos, the prophet of God, wrote, Shall there be evil in a city, and the Lord hath not done it? Now that's not referring to the evil of sin. This is what I want folks to understand. God cannot be charged with sin. Let God be true and every man a liar. Christ, who knew no sin, was made sin, that we, His people, might be made the righteousness of God in Him. That's the only way that sinful mankind could be made righteous. It was the evil of sin whereby men with their wicked hands took and crucified the Lord Jesus Christ. But behind it all, behind it all, was the determinate, determined on purpose, counsel and foreknowledge of God. God was behind it all. The word evil in verse 7 is not talking about the evil of sin. It's talking about calamity. It's talking about trouble. The trouble that God sends and, and all God has to, to, to do to allow evil to manifest is simply just let man have his way. Because by nature, men are evil. We love darkness rather than light. Because our deeds are what? Evil. It's God who works all things after the counsel of His own will. Not just the things that we think and believe to be good. All things. All the things that men believe to be bad. All things, even evil, troublesome things caused by the sin of man are allowed by God or overruled by Him for the good of His people those who are the called according to His purpose. Murder. It's a, it's a horrible thing. War. How horrific. Famine. Pestilence. But all these things are permitted, are allowed by God. God permits these things for the greater good of His chosen people. That's what this book teaches. I can't explain it. I can't explain predestination. But I certainly understand that it's so because God says that it is. According to the Bible, God's Word, anything and everything that comes to pass, God purposed before the foundation of the world. I'm going to show you that in the Scriptures. I can't explain God's providence. But I certainly believe it. And I understand that God declares it to be so. Every single thing that God purposed before the foundation of the world, He brings to pass in time. And everything that He brings to pass in time, He purposed before the foundation of the world. 
God said, I create evil. I create calamity. I bring about disasters. I send trouble. That's what God said. King David, the apple of God's eye, knew that. He said, it's good for me that I have been afflicted that I might learn thy statutes. Now, do you know what that word statutes means? I've told you before. It means appointments. It means decrees. It's good for me that I've been afflicted that I might learn your, your, uh, your decrees. That I might learn your divine appointments. That I might learn that you're in charge, God. That you're in control of everything. That gives the believer great comfort. That didn't upset me. I'm glad God's in charge of everything. It's good for me that I might learn, David said. What, who is it that does the teaching? Our Lord Jesus said, it's written in the prophets that they shall all be taught of God. Every man therefore that hath heard and hath learned of the Father cometh unto me. I want to be taught of God. And if I am taught the truth of Scripture, it's going to be by God. By divine revelation. Now when did God decree the things that come to pass? When did God make His divine, divine appointments? From and before the foundation of the world. That it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet saying, I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Matthew 13.35 Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Matthew 25.34 That the blood of all the prophets which was shed from the foundation of the world may be required of this generation. Luke 11.50 now, when was the blood of the prophets shed? Zechariah, the best I can find, was the first prophet stoned and killed. The first prophet whose blood was shed. He was a prophet from 520 B.C. until 518 B.C. But God purposed that Zechariah should live, die, and have his blood shed from the foundation of the world. All the prophets from the foundation of the world. It was God's decree. It was God's divine appointment. That was what God brought to pass in time. It was what God willed. It was what God purposed and predetermined before the world was ever made. That word providence, it's used one time in the Bible. One time. It's found in Acts chapter 24, verse 2, and it's talking about what God brought to pass concerning the Jewish nation. And do you know what that word used one time in the Bible means? You can look it up. If you've got a concordance, look it up. It means forethought. It means predetermined. It means predestinated. It means destined and determined beforehand. And I'm not going to argue about it. God's the one who said it. If you want to argue, argue with Him about it. Listen to this, John 17, 24, from the mouth of our Lord Himself. Father, I will that they also whom Thou hast given Me be with Me where I am, that they may behold My glory which Thou hast given Me, for Thou lovest Me before 
the foundation of the world. According as He hath chosen us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. When did God choose me? When did God choose you? Before the world was ever made. That we should be holy and without blame before Him in love. For we which have believed do enter into rest, as He has said, I have sworn in my wrath if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For then must He, Christ Jesus, often have suffered since the foundation of the world. But now once in the end of the world hath He appeared to put away sin by the sacrifice of Himself. Hebrews 9.26 Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, now listen, but was manifest in these last times for you. That's exactly what I'm saying. God purposed it before the world began, but He brought it to pass in the course of time. God ordained Christ to be a substitute, a sacrifice and Savior for His people. When? Before the world was ever made. When was this made manifest? It says in these last times for you. In one day, Job lost everything he had, including all ten of his children. All ten. He, he said, you know what he said? He said, the Lord gave and the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. The Lord gave Job all of his children, seven boys and three girls, and the Lord took all of his children away. Job ascribed it all to the Lord. All of it. He said the Lord gave them, the Lord took them away. Well, the Lord wouldn't do that. You better believe He would. He's, he's behind. He's the first cause of everything. When, when did God purpose to do that? Was it the morning before it happened? Did God get up and scratch His hands and what am I going to do today? I think I'm going to kill all Job's kids. No! That's not consistent with what the Word of God teaches. He ordained it to be so before the world was ever spoken to existence. God determined to do so before the world ever was ever made. How were Job's seven sons and three daughters killed? Well, you remember the story. A servant was telling Job about, about how all his camels had been stolen. And while he was yet speaking, yet there came another messenger. And he said, your sons and daughters were feasting and drinking wine at their oldest brother's house when suddenly a mighty wind swept in from the desert and struck the four corners of the house and it collapsed on them and they are dead and I'm the only one who has escaped to tell you. You remember what Amos, Amos asked this question. He said, who forms the mountains and who creates the wind? He said, the Lord, the God of hosts is His name. That's who does it. Who sent this wind? None other but the one, than the one who created it. God. God sent the wind that killed Job's children. A little later, after all these things had come to pass, Job, as you remember, was smitten with boils from head to toe. He's sitting out on a garbage heap. He's scraping his boils with with broken pottery. And his wife says to him, when, when things couldn't be any 
more desperate. He's lost everything. He's lost his children. And now he's there with these oozing boils from head to toe. And she said, do you still retain your integrity? Won't you curse God and die? And do you remember what he said? He said, well, you speak like a foolish woman. Shall we receive good at the hand of God? And shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. So let me say it one more time. God creates evil. That's what he said in verse 7. It's not to be understood, again, as the evil men do because of sin. But in the sense that God directs judgments, disappointments, trials, troubles, and calamities, God has the power to, uh, to allow the mad passions of people to rage. Just let them go. God has the power to allow men to make war. War's bad. But God allows it. God has the power to preside over the adverse as well as He has the power to, to allow, uh, make profitable the events in this world. That, that doesn't make God the author of sin. That doesn't make God the creator of sin. God simply allows men and women to carry out their evil tendencies to accomplish His perfect will for the good of His elect people. And we're right back to that. That's why God did what He did for Cyrus. For the good of His people. And that's, friends, what makes the sovereignty of God and the salvation of His people so certain. It's God that saves. God is too sovereign to fail. Why do we always refer to God as sovereign? I had someone ask me that. Why do you always have to qualify God as sovereign? Why not just say God, since only God is sovereign? Is God not, if God's not sovereign, then He's not God, right? So why do we qualify Him as sovereign? Because the God that most people believe and most people uh, worship is anything and everything but sovereign. And we must differentiate our God by calling Him sovereign and by declaring Him to be omnipotent. The God of heaven and earth gives warning to those who despise His sovereignty, His providence, and His predestinating purposes. Look at verse 8. Drop down ye heavens from above and let the skies pour down righteousness. Let the earth open and let them bring forth salvation and let righteousness spring up together. I, the Lord, have created it. If there's going to be any righteousness given to an undeserving sinner, it's going to be God that gives it. And here's the warning, verse 9. Woe unto him that striveth with his Maker. Let the potsherds strive with the potsherds of the earth. Shall the clay... Say to him that fashioned it, What makest thou, or thy work? He hath no hands. Now the warning from God is woe, sorrow, distress to one that strives, one that wrestles, one that battles, one that fights, one that wars with his maker. Woe to the man, the woman who contends and enters into controversy with their creator. Woe 
to the one who disputes with God concerning his purposes and his decrees. Woe unto the person who murmurs and quarrels and argues, making light of God's right to do what he will with his own. God says, let the potsherd strive with the potsherds of the earth. In other words, let men strive with men. Argue and debate, if you will, with other earthen vessels made of the same mass and lump as you are. But don't be so vain as to strive with God, who is man's maker and creator, the powerful potter who can dash to pieces the clay that's in his hand. Let's go down to the potter's house. The clay was marred where? In the potter's hands. Does the clay dare declare that God the potter has no hands, no power, no skill to make the clay vessel what He desires? Does the clay vessel dare to claim to make itself to differ? Paul said it this way, Therefore He, God the sovereign potter, hath mercy on whom He'll have mercy and whom He will, He hardeneth. Thou wilt then say to me, why doth he yet find fault? For who hath resisted his will? You say God's sovereign. Then how can he blame someone for doing what he supposedly ordained for him, ordained that man to do? Nay, but old man, who art thou that replies against God? God doesn't have to give uh, reason to us for anything. Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why did you make me like this? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another unto dishonor? Does not the potter have that right and power? The answer is an unequivocal yes. He does. Nebuchadnezzar, he's sitting on his throne. His crown on his head. His purple robe wrapped around his shoulders. He looks out upon Babylon and he says, man, is this not great Babylon that which I have built? And moments later, it's asked, well, what or, or who is that creature out there in the field? Well, it's got hair like eagle's feathers and its nails are like bird claws. It walks on all fours. It eats grass like an oxen. It's driven out from man. What is it? It's the same man who bragged on the difference that he made. And he is later restored. And you know what he says? Blessed be the Most High who is able to abase those who walk in pride. Turn your eyes upon Herod. He speaks and folks just grovel. They bow down before him and they say, well, is this, this is the voice of God. It's not the voice of man. And loving their praise, he doesn't give glory to God and he's eaten up with worms. God's not going to share his glory with another. Who maketh thee to differ from another? What do you have you didn't receive? And what, why do you glory if you didn't receive it? God gets all the glory. Woe unto him that striveth with his maker. Every earthly king's going to die, but God says, I'm God, and beside me there's none else. Why is this so crucial to believe? None other than God can save. God's people are made to see who God is. 
And they're made to see who they are. And in verse 12, God says, I made the earth. I created man upon it. I stretched out the heavens. Who did that? God did that. Where were you when I created the heavens? That's what God says. He asks that question. Where were you? Did I take counsel with you when I did all this? According to verse 13, it's God who makes sinners righteous. And this is our sovereign God. Verse 18, and I'll hurry. For thus saith the Lord that created the heavens, God Himself that formed the earth and made it, He hath established it. He created it not in vain. He formed it to be inhabited. And He says, I am the Lord and there is none else. I have not spoken in secret in a dark place of the earth. I said not unto the seed of Jacob, seek ye me in vain. I, the Lord, speak righteousness. I declare things that are right. Assemble yourselves and come and draw near together, ye that are escaped the mountains, that have no knowledge, that set up the wood of their graven image, and pray unto a God that cannot save. Tell ye and bring them near. Yea, let them take counsel together. Who hath declared this from ancient time? Who hath told it from that time? Have not I the Lord? And there is no God else beside me, a just God and a Savior. There's none beside me. Now my time's up, but I want you to hear me when I say, because it may be the last time you ever hear it. This is the God of the Bible that saves sinners. Only He is capable and willing and able to save. Now let me give you four gospel truths in less than a minute. First, it's God alone who saves. I think we've seen that pretty clearly. Verse 17 says, But Israel shall be saved in the Lord with an everlasting salvation. Ye shall not be ashamed nor confounded world without end. Secondly, how does God save sinners? Verse 21, Look unto me and be ye saved. He saves His elect people foreknown, predestinated, called, and justified from all the ends of the earth. That's the God who saves. He saves His people. That's who He saves. And fourthly, why must we look to Christ alone? Again, verse 21, for He is God. He's a just God and a Savior. There's none else. Oh, friends, may God be pleased to make it so for His glory. You see, everything that God does is for His glory. And may He be pleased to reveal these things to us for our good. Everything God does is for His people's good. Everything. All things. Everything. And may God be pleased to make it so for Christ's sake. And this is why God sovereignly predestines and providentially saves His people from their sin because salvation is of the Lord Jesus Christ even as God for Christ's sake hath forgiven you. That's why we forgive one another. And that's why we bow to this God of the Bible. For Christ's sake, He's forgiven us. And He's our God. And I wouldn't have it any other way. May God be pleased to make it so. Okay, uh, Shelley, we have time to, to sing.